Hey everybody, and welcome to Anthrospin, the all things anthropology podcast, where we meet with different anthropologists and learn what they're into, what they're up to, and what's going on in their corner of the universe that is anthropology. Today, we've got a real crappy episode for you, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because today we meet with Taryn Johnson. She's a PhD candidate at Texas A&M University, and she specializes in isolating and extracting human DNA from paleofeces. Throughout the course of today's episode, we'll talk about her lifelong passion for anthropology and archaeology, how she found her way to her current and slightly peculiar field, and what exactly it is she does, from the potential implications and ethical ramifications of working with human DNA, regardless of how old it is, as well as the different kinds of information that you can get from poop, from genetic information to to dietary information to regional information and even cultural information. This is Anthrospin. How's it going? It's it's going as well as it can. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Is this one recording? Nope, not yet. Cool. All right. Um, say something real quick. I just I'm checking levels. Live long and prosper. Nice. All right. So um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm saying this prematurely, but I feel like I'm starting to get a hang of the doing the podcast thing. Um. But we'll see. Maybe this one will be a train wreck. But um, the first one, this is. But it would be a glorious, glorious train wreck. Yes, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, like the first one, it was really well structured, but I feel like it didn't quite go deep enough. And then the second one was like more than three hours of recording, but we were sort of all over the place, so it was a nightmare to edit it and piece it together into something that actually flowed. So this time, I'm attempting a little bit of a running order. And um, generally speaking, I'm really excited about what you're researching. So um, it's a little more in line of my own interest with anthropology. So um, hopefully that'll show. But um, but yeah, so thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's, it's, it's weird for me. This is like a super out of my comfort zone thing, historically speaking, to be like, devote your time to my weird pet projects. So, um, yeah, thank you. That's all fun. I'm sure plenty of other uh, cohort members would be willing to do this. The only thing there is it would very deeply skew Texas A&M. Why why do you say that? Because it was was all at Texas A&M. Yeah, well, I mean, that's okay. (laughs) Once more people start start hearing this, hopefully um, people start bothering me about it, but... um, but yeah, it's cool. I like it. I've been I've been doing a lot of video for the past few years, so the editing process is like even when it's a nightmare by audio standards, it's still like nothing compared to like the documentaries and stuff that I I've, I've been up to. But um Yeah. But yeah, so how are you how are you weathering the pandemic so far? Well, I'm I'm practicing my social distancing. So I've been at my house for the past week or so. Um, I've done all my laundry, which which usually doesn't happen. Um, I've watched more Netflix than I'd like to admit and haven't done as much academic work as I should, but Texas A&M canceled all classes last week so everybody could put things online. So I'm giving myself until 
Monday is the start of classes again. Oh, gotcha. Um, all right, so they took a whole week off to sort of buffer for the nightmare of getting everything online then? Yeah, because our actual spring break was two weeks ago, um, but they just canceled everything for this past week. Oh, wow. Because everything is going online. So we are waiting for the Monday morning Zoom crash. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And um, Zoom is waiving a bunch of their fees, aren't they now? Um, I really don't know because we just get it through the university. Oh, okay. And so it's, it's already paid for through them. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, maybe that was just for like... Um, like K through 12 public schools are like, if you need to get your classes online, we'll, we'll waive that stuff. But I, it was one of the millions of things floating around social media. Um, yeah. But yeah, so you're, then you've got to get a bunch of course materials ready to teach online then, don't you? I, I don't actually, because I'm a TA this semester for a class that's already online. Oh, well that's convenient. And so... I'm one of the few people, well, one of the few, yeah, people in the AMP department who doesn't actually have to make any changes. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's pretty convenient. I don't blame you for taking about a week <laughs> off then. Yeah, no, I've offered help for uh, other people who might need it. If they need any help getting stuff online, then I'll be like, I can help you put exams up, etc. Yeah. Well, um, all right then, uh, Tell me a little bit about like yourself then and like your um just getting into anthropology. How did that happen? Because everyone seems to have a really nice neat story about that. Yeah. So I kind of did a full circle almost because when I was a kid, I always wanted to be an archaeologist. I already said specifically Egyptology. Um and I was the person where I remember we had career day in elementary school and I dressed up as an archeologist and my mom made me a little fake dig, dig kit with uh, brushes in it, plastic kid gardening equipment. I think there's also an orange peeler in there and that's just what I wanted to be. But then in high school, I got it into my mind that if you do well in science classes, then obviously you have to go pre-med, uh, which is an odd shift. I thought, okay, well, if I'm good at the math and science, then that's that's what I should do in college. So when I was applying, I uh, I applied for biochemistry programs in undergrad. Yeah. And my first semester, I declared a biochem major with a math minor. Oh. And for the first two years, I was on a, a pre-med, pre-health professional track. Wow. And... Uh, it was kind of in the end of my sophomore year that I had this sudden realization that I absolutely loved what I was doing. I love biochemistry. I like being in the lab, but I absolutely hated the reason I was doing it. And I had that sudden thought of why the heck did I ever decide to go pre-med? I realized I was just not what I wanted. So I, I spent a long time Googling how I can mesh biochemistry and archeology. span and that kind of brought me into the more bioarch or ancient DNA side of things. And so my first anthropology class ever was uh, race and human evolution, the second semester of my junior year, where I walked into my professor's office and said, do you think they'd be more likely to accept me into a field school if I declare an anthropology concentration? So I picked up a concentration right then, 
And then my first semester senior year, I applied for grad school, took my capstone chemistry course, took two anthropology classes and two math classes. Wow. Like a crazy person. And now I'm here. So so your um your first anthropology class was not an introductory thing by any stretch of the imagination, was it? No. So that that was that had to have at least been like what, two hundred level? Um well whether you're not Yeah. Right. Yeah, it would have been about a, a two hundred level. Yeah. Or a three hundred. Wow, that's impressive. Normally it seems like people they like take an intro to one of the fields as as like a gen ed requirement and then they're like wow this is awesome and then they just go into anthropology and um they either fall in love with it or don't know what to do with it or both um yeah well, that's pretty cool so you worked in during your your biochemistry thing you did some stuff with epidemiology or no no i i worked in purine biosynthesis okay so um I worked in, in a lab where basically I, I cloned a gene from a non-virulent strain of tuberculosis oh, okay. and uh, made it produce protein and then studied its activity. And then later, um, more in my junior, senior year, I, I mutated that gene. Oh. So it was a lot of PCR and a lot of growing bacteria in, in flasks and on plates. Oh, so that that is translated pretty well into what you wound up doing, or at least yeah. conceptually to me, anyway. I just saw the tuberculosis thing when I was reading your bio bio and assumed it was something epidemiological, um, but non-virulent. I guess it wouldn't be. Um, yeah. But yeah, so was that how you found your way into studying um, paleofeces and all that? Kind kind of. So I knew. Coming into grad school, I was interested in some health-related questions, but also a lot of dietary questions and how your diet can be linked to health, except uh, especially in the gastrointestinal area. Um, so I knew like ancient DNA coming in, but when it comes to coprolites specifically or paleofeces, um, that is kind of because of where I ended up. Because Texas A&M, the founder of our anthropology department is Dr. Von Bryant, and he's one of the premier researchers of paleotheses and various other researchers, um, especially some other grad students, have done a lot of research on paleotheses. And so when I came in, it was already a material that the department had a lot of. And um, I'm working with one of my committee members, Ted Gable. He provide me access to a lot of coprolites from a site in Nevada that I'm going to use to form my dissertation. So it's it's a perfect sample that contains a lot of different types of DNA that can answer my questions. Yeah, and um, so that's, this is all modern human populations then? No, it's it's all it's all ancient. Well, no, I meant um, anatomically or, modern. Um, Yes, yes, all anatomically yeah. modern. That, that's what I meant. I didn't mean, like, people yeah. today. Yeah, sorry. Um, okay, because you were, um, you mentioned, uh, when we were just talking about this on Facebook, you mentioned some of the eth ethical implications. And mm -hmm. um, I was wondering then how old this this is going to be. Because um, obviously if it's a population that's 300,000 years old, uh, there are fewer implications than if it's um, 
potentially tied to some living Native American groups today, uh, which I'm assuming that's where some of the ethical concerns come from. Yes. Um, so the samples that I'm working with range between maybe 700 years old up to 11, 12,000 years old. Oh. Um, and one, one of the main concerns is when you're looking at what is contained in paleofeces genetically, you have the floral and faunal DNA, which would reflect mainly what they're eating or what the environment was. And I don't think anybody would argue that there are ethical concerns with looking at non-human DNA. Um, you can also potentially find parasite DNA, but I'm, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time looking at that since I'm not well-versed in parasites. Um, so do you also find the microbial DNA, which would ideally reflect the gut microbiome, but you will also extract human DNA. And so in any study, if the coprolite was deposited by a human, even if you don't personally look at the human DNA, you will still have access to it. And you, there's no way to not contend with the fact that you will amplify human DNA. Yeah. And so the concern there is, since there be people today that are culturally related to the people who are in this region, it's really important to give them a voice and a say in what is done with or not done with the potential human DNA from these samples. And so I wouldn't ever look at the human DNA without consultation. And that's something that I'm looking into doing through this semester is um, contacting stakeholders and determining what kinds of, one, if if they are okay with me looking at the human DNA, and if so, what kinds of questions they would be interested in having answered or what kinds of questions I would be interested in answering. Um, because the human DNA has a lot of implications in this country beyond just who were these people. Because when you're dealing with, was a population displaced at a certain time or was the ancient population different than the modern people are? even though it's important to note that genetic relatedness does not correlate whatsoever with cultural relatedness. And so even if you say, well, the people genetically in this area are this, that does not mean that the modern people are not part of them. Yeah. Yeah, that um, definitely in the United States, there are a lot of implications with all that type of stuff. I know there was... um. Several years ago, I was looking at some study related to um, blood and extracting blood from, it was somewhere in the Southwest. Um, there, was, there was some issue with tribal identity and extracting the blood, and then if this blood is held in a lab somewhere and these individuals die, that blood needs to be with them or they're not actually like considered to be at peace basically i don't i don't quite remember the specifics of it but um yeah what you're talking about ties into that yeah because the main the main thing is it's really easy to say that i personally would not mind if somebody took my blood and used it for purposes or if let's say somebody did research on my ancestors but not everybody feels the same way and projects, you have to do what you're supposed to do as an anthropologist and do the think of um, from a relativistic standpoint and realize that the people that you're taking samples from might have a different belief system or feel differently about it. And so you have to acknowledge that in your research. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and then I don't know if we we touched specifically on this, but why poop? <laughs> well, as as I normally tell people, what comes in must comes out. So if you're trying to get a picture of what people ate, their poop is a good place to look. Okay. Um, but the other advantage of it is, one, you can get all the microbial data, but feces gives you a really good way to do comparative studies, which is um, something I'm interested in doing. And I'm already doing some comparative studies with some fellow grad students here because when you're looking at paleofeces or coprolites, you can get the DNA. There are also people doing um, proteomic work on them, looking at some steroids, but you can also pick out the macro and the micro remains. So you can pick out, let's say, any seed fragments, uh, fauna that are just within the coprolite. Um, my first year here, I did some macro analysis on some Honduran coprolites, and I pulled out like tiny rodent bones, hackberry seeds. I've got some squash seed cases, insect parts, and then other people can do, let's say, pollen analysis starches, phytoliths, et cetera. And so you are not limited to just the DNA. You can get a more complete picture. And you can also look at it as a, if I have a certain research question, let's say I'm looking for evidence of maize usage and I have copper lights. Are we more likely to find maize as a macro remain or are we more likely to see it as a genetic remain? So these are some kinds of methodological questions you might be able to answer if you're trying to figure out what analyses you want to do. Um, and obviously with macro remains, it's very obvious. How would you then, um, if you're just finding like genetic elements of maize or whatever in a coprolite, um, that could be something consumed directly or sort of indirectly, correct? Like, uh, if I eat something that eats corn, <laughs> I'm going to be getting the corn DNA. Uh, no. No, because no, if, if you are, let's say you are eating just a steak. So the only DNA you're getting from that steak is going to be the cow DNA. It doesn't matter if the cow was eating a lot of grass, because that will all be in the stomach and processed. Because what comes out in the actual critter is just going to be their own cells and their own DNA. Um, the, the one exception which is a problem in a lot of um, Paleo-American sites is dog coprolites. One of the big questions is if you have a coprolite determining if it is uh, human deposition or dog deposition. And that is because if you ignore that dogs would probably have a similar diet if they're living in the same area, dogs also will eat human feces. And so that would be a case of what they are eating does reflect what somebody else was eating and it is now deposited in their feces. Gotcha. All right, yeah, I mean, I was thinking of, um, I've been trying to find a more recent um, version of this study. Uh, 10 years ago, there was a study done on a gorilla population and they had found mm -hmm. evidence that this particular gorilla population was eating monkeys. Oh. Um, monkeys and doikers and um, obviously that's a big deal for gorillas to be doing that type of stuff so um, they were saying they don't know if they're 
directly eating it or if they were consuming insects that fed off of those animals and so they're ingesting an entire organism that has some of whatever monkey's blood in its system when it's eaten. So they're sort of indirectly, are they directly eating a monkey or are they accidentally ingesting monkey DNA that some insect just ingested? Um, gotcha. So that's, that's well, I guess. I guess it'd be possible depending on what people are eating. Yeah. We know there's evidence that people would sometimes eat rodents whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but... maybe there could be some, some of that going on, but it would not be a major component. Yeah. I, I guess, guess if true. you were, let's say eating a whole monkey, then you'd be eating the monkey and all the stomach contents. Yeah. And so whatever, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. I'd say the record doesn't really show anything that would indicate they're eating large amounts of a whole critter that was feeding on purely other critters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just something that was fresh on my mind because it was like two days ago I found this. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you, if that would probably be in considerably smaller concentrations, it would be like a trace of, of it if it were just something indirectly consumed. So probably not too much of a concern for what you're doing. Yeah, when you're dealing with ancient DNA, you generally take a more conservative route in the analysis. So if you only have, let's say, one read of a certain organism, then you're probably going to discard that. So if it's not present in larger amounts, then it would likely be excluded anyways. Gotcha. Um, th- I don't, this is really interesting to me, um, aside from the fact that it's just super interesting in general, um, because in... 2013, I um, I was in Kenya doing, I was in field school and we were doing surface collections. We were going back to different sites that um, were associated with different species of Homo and Paranthropus. And mm-hmm. um, er, either late 2012 or early 2013, there was some isotopic data published by, I want to say, Nick Serling that um, it illustrated that from... 1.99 to 1.67 million years ago, uh, mm-hmm. Homo was associated with C3 foods, which are um, uh, trees and shrubs. Yeah. And Paranthropus was grasses and sedges, which is C4. And then at like 1.65, Homo kind of generalizes, including those C4 f- foods. And obviously there's no Paranthropus walking around right now. Um, so it was just suggesting that we're generalizing and sort of encroaching on their ecological niches. And then we went back, part of the component of that project was just locating these sites that were discovered and cataloged long Mm -hmm. before GPS in like the fifties where like they found this site and then they went back and told some local person to go there and drop a marker. So, um, it was kind of tricky to even locate those. And then, um, but then we did... Um, collections to to look at what animals were associated with it, um, because obviously it's it's one thing to say you're associated with uh, trees and shrubs, but that also means you're associated with the animals that are consuming them as well. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so this is kind of a you're doing sort of a more modern, more specific version of what I'm interested in in the human fossil record. So it's just, uh, I don't know, super cool to me that that this happens to be what you're into. Um, 
but I'm also super biased. What do you mean? Because it's my research. Yeah, it's what I do sense. every day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you, you also said that this would um, have, it would let us know about resource utilization. Um, can you go off a bit about that? <laughs> I can. Um, so when you're looking at the dietary components, it's easy to say that uh, just based things on ubiquity where you say this particular um, coprolite in this time frame has just a few wetland resources, um, small dietary breadth, and not tons of plant variety, let's say. Then if you go into a different time frame and you suddenly see that you're finding a much wider range of uh, plant resources being utilized, let's say introduction of a lot of small seed resources, and it's still more a wetland environment, you can kind of see a shift in how not necessarily just what resources were available to people, but what resources people were utilizing at different times. Oh, my brain is so jumbled right now. I don't know if it's the same with you. It, it kind of is. Like, I I feel like we've we've covered a lot of the the things that like you you sent over what your research is and everything. I feel like we've covered a lot of that, but I feel like based on the amount of time we've been actually talking. We should have been talking for a lot longer about this stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it must just be because Skype is being goofy. And um, I, I feel like I'm not quite here. I've been going stir crazy. Yeah. So are you, you're actually like, um, what am I saying? Lock, are you actually on like lockdown over there or? Uh, yeah, most of the state of Texas is on lockdown. Oh, wow. I, you can still go outside and whatnot, but yeah. all the restaurants are closed. You can only do delivery or uh, takeout. Um, trying to enforce the no more than 10 people in a group, keep distance. And uh, I think in some places they authorize police to break up gatherings of more than 10 people. Okay, yeah. So it's that, just really weird. Yeah, it's pretty much the same over here. We're, um, we're expecting the governor to uh, announce that it's essential services only like within the next couple days which means that i'm gonna be home indefinitely too but yeah it's still it's um 10 or fewer people um i i think that there are fines for larger groups and all that uh, so i'm not quite stir crazy yet because i'm still i'm still going to work and i get there on a bike yeah so i'm not i'm not quite nuts yet but uh I think it'll happen really quickly once it's we're going to go to essential services only and a paper factory is not essential services so it, it's going to happen within the next few days i'm i'm pretty sure of it um yeah yeah it's it's pretty crazy though are are you having any people near you that are just completely disregarding it and having like covid parties um I, I have no idea. Oh, because there, there are some local people that are, like, posting, like, this person, like, they actually have a sign, like, whoever it was is COVID party, and, like, the party must go on, and they're just, like, having a party in their yard. And this is, yeah. like, a few miles from me. It's like, why? 
But whatever. I, I mean, I guess that's a pretty American mentality to have, like, just refuse to be told what to do, which it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, my brain has worked out a better thought of uh, resource utilization. Yeah, okay, perfect. Yeah, um, so an example of one of the questions that is big in the Great Basin, which is where my dissertation samples come from, is about the Numic expansion, where generally accepted that at some point the population in that region currently is not the same as the population that was there um, ancestrally. But the question is, did they come in, let's say, 1,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago? And a lot of the initial um, arguments were based on linguistic data such as glottochronology, which is not always considered the best method as of now. Um, but the the assumption is that if there's this displacement, then what people believe might have happened if it was 1,000 years ago is that the Numic people were able to outcompete the pre-Numic people for resources. And this would be in a difference in their utilization of resources. So if the pre-Numic peoples are considered to be um, more nomadic foragers going between different wetland patches to utilize uh, higher ranked resources, and the Numic people would come in and utilize more of the lower ranked resources such as uh, small seed processing. And so if you're trying to answer the question of are the people in a region pre-Numic or Numic, is there evidence for that kind of an expansion at this time? Then if you find that a particular site has evidence of a lot of small seed usage, then that would show that they were utilizing those resources versus not utilizing them. So it's kind of looking at the differences and the types of resources that people are utilizing could say, is this a displacement of people because the resources that they are using shifts in this time frame? Hmm, gotcha. Yeah, or if you're trying to answer, are certain people Fremont, let's say, which was a culture that was found a lot in Utah. Um, if they're utilizing a lot of maize resources, then they might be more linked to that culture than if they are not. It's kind of just trying to link people to some more of the cultural elements beyond just what was environmentally available, because just because something is in the environment doesn't mean people are using it. Gotcha. Yeah, and that, yeah, okay. And that would be definitely a cultural difference. Um... What was the, you mentioned a linguistic method of, of looking at lot of chronology. Okay. Can you explain that a bit? I, I really I'm, can't. Oh, okay. I, I am terrible at linguistics. I took one linguistics class and it was taught by the German professor who all of his upper level German students were in the class and half the time he would just speak German with them. Oh, and I'm assuming you don't speak German. You were interested in linguistics? Kind Deutsch. Okay. <laughs> I spent through, oh, I spent like a month in German speaking countries this past summer and I got really good at saying Kind Deutsch. <laughs> Most of the people there, I, where in, where exactly were you? Yeah, so I was two weeks in Jena. I was um, doing a short internship at the Max Planck there, learning how to do a lot of coding for. <sighs> 
working with the microbial samples that I will have in the near future. Um, then I spent a few days in Leipzig and I was in Berlin. Um, and later that summer, I spent some time in Austria and um, Zurich. Okay. Um, what year was this? This was this past summer. I, okay. yeah, I, um, I had a the brief internship in in Jena, and then because I was in Europe, uh, I just spent the rest of the two months backpacking around. So I got through. 10 countries and 19 cities. Nice. Yeah, it's it's weird how um, easy it is to get to another country when you're already in Europe. Yeah. Um, um, my wife and I are actually moving to uh, Leipzig. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's a really nice place. I know. I love it there. Um, we For our honeymoon, we sort of did a, a zoo and food crawl of Germany. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So... Um, we flew into Frankfurt and spent a few days there and then in Berlin and then uh, Leipzig, Munich, and then back up to Frankfurt. And um, I expected to like Leipzig a lot. I mean, first of all, Max Planck is there and that's been my... Yeah, that... it won, Yeah, one of the two main Max Planck's and it's a quick train, well, like an hour train ride to Jena, which has the other Max Planck that is most affiliated with anthropology. Yeah. Yeah, because they separate it all there. So the the it, in Europe the the four fields are all separated. So um, the Max yeah. Planck in, in Leipzig is evolutionary anthropology or whatever, however they they word it. That yeah, so. and Jena is the uh, for the study of human history. Okay, um, but yeah, I it's I'm realizing that uh, having a four fields anthropology background is getting very frustrating as I get more into more things and like, yeah and and i have enough of a background to like properly inquire into them so right now i've been like geeking out about linguistics and um yeah i was looking at all your posts about the hawaiian language revitalization yeah that's it it's really i think i was a bit naive in starting that i, I have to kind of figure out how to jump start it again but um, I got a bunch of people that were interested in it, and uh, I think shortly thereafter, everyone realized how tall of an order it is to learn an indigenous language when you're not immediately exposed to it. Um, so I was hoping everyone would just geek out to the extent that I did. And yeah. then, like, once I started uh, being like, we should, we should all be at this point in like Duolingo and like by the end of the month, I'd like to be able to basically say like, what did you do this weekend? Um, and people just started sort of fizzling out. And then I think it started feeling like an obligation rather than something that was fun. And uh, then I started reading other stuff. So I got to get back into it. But yeah, I, I've been meaning to make like a video talking about the Hawaiian alphabet. I was mentioned in a comment. Um, but yeah, I, I, I gotta get back into that. I was really excited about it. I was definitely excited to be learning a Polynesian language, um, mm -hmm. cause it's just so much different and, uh, I don't know. I gotta get back into it. And I was hoping that by June I would feel comfortable, like adding Hawaiian to, uh, like 
on Facebook where it says like speaks English and German, then I could I could put Hawaiian. But I don't know that'll be there by June. Unless we go on lockdown, in which case I can just spend the entire day studying Hawaiian. Yeah, yeah, I'm using lockdown to partially finally learn ukulele. Oh cool. Yeah, um ukulele's fun. I don't I don't really play it. My wife plays and I play guitar, so every once in a while I'll pick it up and strum around a little bit. But it's such a happy instrument. Yeah. It's like I'm I'm a flautist. Yeah. Um, so I mean I know how to read music, but the chords is different. And my my main impetus is I want to learn how to play toss a coin to your witcher. Because I have a friend who is going at some point wants to do a, a Geralt cosplay, and so I said that I'd be his Yaskier. <laughs> that's great. Um, so that was, that's why you decided to start learning ukulele. Okay. I got it a couple years ago. Um, it's just finding time to actually learn it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you're you're a flautist, so that's completely different. But coming from guitar, the the strumming is a little bit different. Um, than on guitar, even though I play mostly fingerstyle on guitar, uh, the ukulele with the sort of, I don't know, finger type strumming is, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, that's that's the hardest part for me right now. But yeah. I'm about to have a friend who's going to be a temporary roommate while um, Angie is in quarantine at her apartment, uh, plays cello. So she'll have her cello over here and can oh, cool. help me out a bit. Yeah. So Angie's already back. She's just quarantine oh, she's uh she's on a flight right now i guess timing she's flying from jakarta to doha right now we um we did the emergency we got her a plane ticket the other day yeah. and so everything is booked and she's coming into dallas but since she's coming from overseas she has to do quarantine yeah so she's going to go to the house of um our friend robin because we figured it'd be best if she came back to a familiar environment and knew how to operate during yeah. her quarantine um so the person who normally lives there, she's going to live with me for a couple weeks. Oh, well, that's cool. That's like, yeah. I feel so bad for her. Like, it was such a long process even getting there. And then, yeah. oh, man. I, like, she, she made that big post the other day, and I was, it's just so deflating. I mean, I know she's going to get back there and everything, but still. I was hoping that when she was like, no, I'm just going to stay here, because, like, in the middle of the jungle, you're pretty well isolated. Yeah. That's that's about all the social distance you can hope for, but I, yeah, I don't know. I'm sad for her. Yeah, but know that she she is on a plane right now. She'll be in Texas around 4 p.m. tomorrow. So I'm yeah, I'm assuming shortly uh once she is reconstituted, that's when my uh my Facebook thread with her will start blowing up with her responding to all the memes and everything I've been spent sending her for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. But, but yeah, um, so what else has been going on here? What, um, I don't know what I'm going on to. So other than ukulele, what, uh, what other fun stuff are you like, uh, what other fun anthropology stuff is on your radar now that you're in quarantine or, or isolation or whatever? Yeah, well, the fun thing is I can, one, work on um, a paper because one thing that was evident when I was doing all of my prelim research, um, which let me just say, I'm very happy 
that I scheduled my prelims for before spring break because it was during spring break that all of this craziness started happening. <laughs> yeah, that was for two years. <laughs> yeah, um, is that a lot of the ethical talks dealing with ancient DNA or dealing with remains or remnants of, of people, um, but not so much has been written about working with, say, paleo feces or sediment, because sediment can still have human DNA in it things like that, that are composite samples with a bunch of different types of DNA. And that's just because using them in research is much more recent. Um, and so there, there aren't tons of published straight up guidelines for how to work with these materials in an ethical manner. There's some people, they've posted lists. I think the Warner Group has discussed this at some point and there are best practices that you can kind of adapt from working with human remains but I'm just going to try to compile a, a list for a publication of kind of your your step-by-step -step best practices when dealing with potential human DNA and composite samples. Um, so that, that'll be something that happens. Um, and beyond that, I'm in all research hours and because you know there aren't really people on campus, I'm still gonna go into the department regularly, but I'm going to get some metadata on some coprolite samples I have. So just taking pictures, weighing them, measuring them, describing physical characteristics and subsampling all of them in the ancient lab. Gotcha. So I figure being in an ancient DNA lab is pretty safe because one, you're in a full Tyvek 3M suit, double gloves alone, and there's a positive air pressure. Um, so I'm, I'm going to spend some of my isolation in a lab That's actually getting my hands dirty and by my hands dirty, they'll be double gloved. So they will be entirely clean. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned coprolites and paleo feces. It seems fairly interchangeably. Yeah. So initially they were called coprolites and that is what I initially called them. And I love the term coprolite. My Instagram is coprolife. <laughs> Bio is like I didn't choose the copper life. The copper life chose me. Oh wow! Um, I my roommate from my old roommate actually even bought me a copper light from a dinosaur that's yeah. sitting in that shelf over there. Okay. Um, but I've seen there's a trend with especially people who are currently working with them to try to call them paleo feces because paleo feces is a more correct term. Yeah. Because copper light is stone poop. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense for fossil actually just desiccated and not really fossilized. Yeah. Coprolite is technically not an appropriate term. And so I'm, I'm trying to transition into calling them paleo feces. So I'll sometimes still use both of them, but in titles and in publications, I'm going to stick with paleo feces. I mean, I also, I have a hard time presenting my research without using various terms you I'll probably say poop, turd, crap, yeah. feces. It all pops up in there. <laughs> yeah, all right. yeah, that makes sense because I, I think paleo feces is probably what I would have. I don't want to say come up with, but if I were to ask, if I were asked to describe it, like the the desiccated ancient feces, I would probably come up with paleo feces and um just from early dinosaur paleontology geek outs i know about coprolites so yeah then hearing about the two of them I'm like okay there there's a just like i 
I know enough about paleo and um, fossilization and everything to be like, okay, there's a distinction there. But you actually working with it, I was wondering if it was ac- actually was interchangeable or if it was exactly what you just described. Yeah, so I'd say as of now, it's it's pretty much interchangeable. If you're talking to archaeologists, they'll know that you're talking about the desiccated. Because um, as we all know, we don't dig dinosaurs. We don't generally deal with anything that's fully fossilized. Um, not saying that if we left them for another billion years in caves and rock shelters that they wouldn't become fossilized, but you can still rehydrate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because that's how you do the the macro analysis. You have to rehydrate a subsample so that you can actually pick things apart. Okay, yeah, like the, um, makes me think of owl pellets in, like, middle school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty much the same same process. The rehydrated part and take it all out. Yeah. Huh. And people were actually researchers would use them as fuel um i would i don't know if people have explicitly used them as fuel it's just one of those things that when people come across dried feces it is a common fuel item oh okay so it's like a tinder type thing you just toss it in the fire or whatever yeah but i do know that there are some reports of them if they're really flat just chucking them places which, um, I guess they wouldn't be throwing them that far, but if you're looking at a microenvironment, if someone chucks enough of the feces somewhere else, <laughs> I guess it could conceivably skew something. Yeah, well, if you check it out of its preserved environment, then it would probably degrade pretty fast because there are two primary environments. Well, the environments that work best for paleo feces is the same that works for DNA. You're looking at really dry environments, really frozen environments, or some anaerobic you just don't want tons of oxygen or tons of, you don't want tons of water and oxygen. Gotcha. Yeah. That'll just degrade the DNA fast. Because the fun thing with the term ancient DNA is ancient isn't really referring to how old it is. And so you could have DNA that's just like physically two weeks old, but if it's highly degraded, it would be considered as ancient. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I guess it's it's ancient as far as DNA is concerned. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's actually um, a fun paper that was looking at the hypothetical half-life of DNA and how old could DNA be before the fragments were too short for you to be able to identify them. And the highest estimate is like a million years, but the oldest successfully sequenced ancient DNA was around 700,000 years old. It was an ancient horse. That's awesome. So anything older than like that million year mark, it's not a good candidate for DNA because chances are, even in really good preservation, it's too degraded. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you can identify that there is like biological material there, it's, uh, there's just not enough of, but it's so cool. The, uh, the, the advances that have been made fairly recently, um, next generation sequencing. Yeah. Um, I, I, like, I remember before I even got into undergrad reading, like, ancient DNA hadn't yet been sequenced, or if it had been, it hadn't been published yet. And I was just thinking, like, there has to be, like, fossilized DNA or something along the lines of that that 
could actually be extracted and looked at and then like I don't know five or ten years later I started seeing stuff by like Swante Pabo and and um and the like that ancient DNA was actually being extracted and, and replicated and sequenced and I was like this is it's not Jetsons flying cars but this is definitely the future yeah there there were definitely some some wonky studies in the days when people were still trying to figure out methods and see how far you could go there's one study where people claimed that they extracted dna from a leaf imprint that was millions of years old which is not the case i think there was one study where what they actually were what they sequenced made no sense and they figured that one of their colleagues was eating a turkey sandwich that <laughs> that's wonderful yeah because the main thing with with working with ancient DNA is the reason we get fully suited up is not to protect ourselves because there's nothing we're working with that is inherently super dangerous to us unless you, I don't know, spill it all on you. Uh, it's We're trying to protect the samples from ourselves because yeah. your skin, it's covered in modern DNA. And if you are, your modern DNA will always outcompete the ancient stuff. It's also covered in nuclease, uh, DNA is just tons of small things that will degrade DNA. And so you want to try to avoid handling it. Yeah. So we're protecting our samples because it's it's pretty much assumed that you're probably going to get some modern combination at least. So a lot of some labs will have um, the sequences of all of their lab members on file so they can kind of use that as comparison and separate that out. I I hope that in this sort of more modern DNA slash DNA extraction slash uh, archaeological protocol technology or whatever I'm trying to say, I'm hoping that we get a little more foresighted with the handling of things. Um, like I mentioned in our in our little chat coming up to this, that. Um, they they realized the amount of data they can get from dental calculus and then they were like we really need to stop cleaning that off the teeth when we're prepping yeah. the fossils um i hope we start erring more on the side of caution with that because we don't know 25 50 75 years from now what kind of stuff um we can glean from from new materials that we're finding and then retrospectively realizing we just threw in the garbage um, because we cleaned it off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, methods are constantly improving, but I can say that everyone that I've worked with um, that deals with ancient DNA or knows others, um, one of the main concerns is, one, can you take the sample and make sure that there is still sample remaining for future researchers? And so, for example, with my um, paleo feces, I take a total of... Um, I guess a total of one gram of material. And so one half of that gram I will be using for extraction. So I'll do like two um, extractions on 200 milligrams of, of sample. And there might be a little bit extra for something else. But then that other half gram of sample is just going to live in the freezer, live in the lab, unextracted for the future. Um, the other thing is, Whenever I'm, I'm selecting coprolites, I weigh them 
all just to make sure that there is physically enough material remains or micro remains and to keep some of the sample just unextracted, unanalyzed in storage. Um, so that's, that's in my mind, the best due diligence I can do for ensuring that the samples I personally work with mm -hmm. will remain available to other researchers. Um, but I know that's not always feasible with, with certain samples, especially fossil, uh, especially on bones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point, there's just not enough left. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's tough because you don't know what a future researcher is going to be looking for. So even like saving all you can of what you extract and look at um, and documenting whatever's present, it just might not be relevant to their research. Um, yeah. So it's... <laughs> yeah, so something I'm hoping with, with paleo feces, but with sediment, because I've worked with sediment as well, is if you're working with those kinds of samples, it's usually much more available in a site if you have it. Um, most people are generally fine with you analyzing those types of resources and you're not going to be destroying any important morphologies or other types of study. And so samples such as those could present themselves as a good proxy for studying more uh, rare, more valuable samples. Because if you want to, let's say, get the human DNA instead of destroying the only bone you have, if there is a fecal sample, you might be able to use that instead. It's all a case-by-case -case basis, but it might present itself as a way of studying some of these questions without being as destructive. Gotcha. That's kind of resourceful, I guess. Um, I, I feel like that... That might be close to it at this point. <laughs> um, uh, is there anything else going on on your end that you want to talk about or plug or boast about or whatever? Oh my gosh. Um, I'd say generally speaking, people who want to get into ancient DNA. It's a there's a lot of cases where you let's say just have um, geneticists looking at it and not always communicating with the archaeological side, or you sometimes have the archaeological side that doesn't always know enough about the genetics to know what kinds of questions to ask um, or to ensure that they know what is going on in the study. So uh, I, I'm a proponent of instead of trying to figure out how to get geneticists and archaeologists to communicate with each other, because they come from very different um, kind of theoretical backgrounds and very different thought processes of how you deal with a sample and how you think about a sample, mm -hmm. is figure that we need more people who are both. We need more archaeogeneticists who have the background in genetics, but also have some background in archaeology. This doesn't mean you have to... Um, and say, do what I did and get a biochemistry degree and then come to an archaeology program. But if you're going into archaeology, maybe getting a minor or concentration in a biological science to have more of a... Because um, that way you can just be a more well-rounded researcher and kind of bridge that gap of the two disciplines. Yeah. That, that's almost an advertisement for... Uh for fields anthropology <laughs> only um 
only only more carried into the uh, advanced degree specializations. Um, yeah, or going into it, don't don't just go into it saying I want to do DNA work because just doing DNA doesn't answer questions. You need to come in with a hypothesis and say what what questions do I want answered? How does this advance the field? And then fit your research into that instead of just saying you're going to do this work. And that's the same thing for really any study. If you want to say, I just want to do the lithics, like, well, what, what do you want to do with them? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like at the under, the, the what you want to do with them, obviously that comes along more as you get further into studies but sometimes you're further into studies and then you should know all that other stuff for the, for the the fields that you're trying to bridge. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's why now I'm trusting in interdisciplinary communication might not quite be enough. <laughs> yeah, but I, I also tell a lot of people, like whenever we have, we've had events where let's say high schoolers are coming and they're trying to determine if they want to come to Texas A&M if they want to be an anthropologist or um, I've had undergrads in some of my anth classes who are trying to figure out if they want to do something with anthropology. And what I always assure them of is if you're not sure about it, one, anthropology has utility in many fields because it teaches you how to, you know, look at people and try to figure out where they're coming from and communicate. Uh, but it's like you don't have to have you don't have to get your degree in anthropology to be an anthropologist. Okay. It's because there are a lot of students, especially at TAM, because of engineering agriculture school, and they'll say, well, I'm really interested in doing something with anthropology, but I'm getting an engineering degree and I'm trying to figure out how to put the two together. And that's when I tell them, like, that's okay, because that just means you can apply that engineering knowledge to an anthropological uh, question. We have some engineers in our nautical archaeology program who are able to use their skills to look at ship construction. So it's it's a field that does really well in utilizing skills from a variety of fields. And so if it's something you have passion for, even if you didn't start there, you can still get there and use all of your skills to answer something. I actually really like that because usually people present it the other way around. Like, oh, yeah? Like your your background in anthropology can be applied to so many other fields. So, I mean, you said that an anthropology background has a lot of application elsewhere, but yeah. I don't usually hear it said that elsewhere has a lot of application within anthropology. And um, I kind of yeah. like that because I, I want to get... I want to get people excited for anthropology um, because it's the best. But, um, but a lot of people try to be well, like... Well, it is. It is, yes, of course. But um, but yeah, a lot of times like in like introductory classes, they'll be like, well, this, like these fields look for people with anthropology backgrounds. But like, what if you actually want to get into a field within anthropology? I don't feel like there's a lot of focus on that as much as there yeah. should be. Yeah, because that's that's exactly what I did. And if you look at just our department, the Dr. Wright, who founded our department, got a PhD in botany, and now he does palynology and um, 
micro-meta-analysis. We've got, let's say, if you're doing um, more geoarchaeology, then coming in with your geology-type degree would make a lot of sense. Uh, so it's like you don't always have to have a degree in that particular field because it's it's applicable. So I say if, if your field is studying humanity in all its forms, then it's useful to humans with all types of skills. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, a, a friend of mine, um, he started, he took like an intro to anthropology course at, at, um, at a community college. And he kept it, he got really into it. So he started asking me questions about anthropology and he was studying the Russian language and he was asking me different questions about anthropological studies of Russian culture, Russian language and different stuff like that. And everything I was like, yeah, that exists. And I was directing him. He's like, anthropology is just the study of stuff. And that's, that's really all it is. It's anything humans have ever done and anything that's ever had anything to do with humans. So it's literally anything you could think of you can approach anthropologically, which is why anthropology is the best. Although although this is making me think of something, you're definitely going to have to cut this out, but we took a a teaching anthropology course to teach in our department. And I just remember on day one, our instructor said, and just know, anthropology is a... will want to learn because you can walk into a classroom full of like 20 somethings that just came from small town texas and haven't been exposed to anything and with a completely straight face say today we're talking about ritualized fellatio and continue to lecture (laughs) um yeah i'll cut that part out (laughs) yeah i just think it's hilarious because it's a good story it's like yep and you know what i did when i i taught last semester I talked about ritualized fellatio. Awesome. Yeah, we talked about that in um, in some bioanth course. Um, was it the uh, some tribe in Papua? Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the tribe, but yeah, like the it's like complete separation of sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're seeing it as the life force, and it's it's just a good way of. I don't, I don't believe in censoring things for students. They're all adults. If yeah. they don't want to deal with it, they can always walk out. Um, but what, it, it's a good way of challenging the students because yeah. if you present them with this after they've been learning about you have to start contending with the, in our culture, we inherently think this is wrong, this is abuse, this is horrible. But from their cultural perspective, it's not seen that way. And so it, it really makes people kind of, you can see the wheels turning and sticking and smoke going out of their ears. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Um, heteronormativity is very powerful in our culture and, uh, and it, it gives different, there's, there's a whole bunch of different levels to that because there's the, like even the pedophilia aspect of it, um, where it's kind of skeevy but it doesn't have that same kind of psychologically damaging aspect that it doesn't like there are just so many different levels that you can have these this discussion yeah. and unpacking and um you start thinking about like cultural norms and things that are assumed to be universal and um 
Western psychology, and there are just so many different directions that you can take it. And uh, yeah, I imagine some some 19-year-old rural Texas kid walking into a class and getting that thrown at them is, um, smoke is definitely going to be coming out of their ears. I think the other thing they appreciated is when I was telling them some Egyptian mythology, uh, and I, I told them that, you know, Ra was lonely, so he masturbated new gods into existence. And on the, the next exam, my bonus question was, draw me a meme. And a few of the students used that as a reference. Do you know the evil Kermit meme? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first panel was, oh, I'm so lonely. And then the second evil Kermit was, hmm, I'll just masturbate. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I might end up keeping this after all. <laughs> Uh, I, I, most of the people listening to this are going to be adults anyway, and they need to, if they're interested in anthropology, they, they they have to realize how gross it can get. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you, students really do surprise you, because we're in a more conservative part of the state, and if you consider, let's say, TAMU or Texas A&M University versus University of Texas at Austin, uh, TAMU is considered the conservative one and UT the liberal one. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, no. oh. so you go into your classroom thinking, one, students might walk out of certain lectures such as evolution or gender sexuality, um, but they do it very politely, I have to say. Hmm. If they do, it's, it's super polite. They'll just stand silently or they'll just walk out. But it's always just pleasantly surprising and heartwarming when you have this classroom of students and they really engage with the material and the things that you think will, um, let's say, trigger them in some way or cause them to question you and they just engage in, in conversation. Hmm. I had my students do a, a mini ethnography and so many of them ended up going to a, a drag show <laughs> and just them writing about how going into it, they had a lot of trepidation and all these negative feelings towards it because they just had never experienced something like that. And then coming out of it, realizing that it was a super positive experience, that everybody was super friendly and accepting and that they would definitely go again. It's like, how to, how to warm this anthropologist's heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's some conservative kid and the only thing they know about is their parents, like protesting the, uh, drag queen story hours, then they're probably going into that with a much different um, set of assumptions than they came out of it with. Yeah. So I just always, always try to tell my students, I let them know that like, this is not a place where we're judging people or we're going to look down on anybody because of what they believe or how they see things. But it's also, it's not, it doesn't inherently make you a bad person if you have certain negative feelings towards a person based on their appearance. What makes it bad is are you going to take that feeling and use it to treat them differently and to look down on them? Or are you going to look at it as this is evidence of my own biases and I'm going to do my best to ignore it and treat them like an equal human being? So that's what I try to steer them towards. Yeah, I think anthropology is particularly well suited to that. Um, now, your department, it's not the traditional four fields, you know, Chicago school, is it? No, 
I believe uh, Angie touched on it. We we have archaeology divided into terrestrial and nautical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bio and and cultural. Texas A&M does have linguistics. It's just in the English department, I believe. Gotcha. Okay, so you yeah, can, so you, you can sort of get the the four fields experience if you uh, yeah jump around a bit. But, yeah. But yeah, so you're having you have that direct um, cultural anthropological experience so that you can definitely pull that into your lectures because your department is um, about that anyway. So yeah, that's good. that and the, um, the primary class that all the graduate students teach at some point is basically an intro to cultural anthropology course. Oh, gotcha. So even if we're not um, cultural anthropologists, we do have that experience. And if we're not teaching that class, then that's the class that we're generally TAs for. So everybody will get that regardless of what subfield they're in. Okay. Cool. But, um, anyway, I think, uh, I think that might about do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you again. This is this is super cool, and it's always fun to geek out about anthropology. Um, oh, yeah. Especially because I'm, like, half an anthropologist at this point. I'm, like, almost like a Bill Nye of anthropology. Like, I'm, I'm teaching people about it, but not necessarily doing it myself. Although I am in well, some You're still an anthropologist, then, because part of anthropology is teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just funny, like, going into my undergrad, I knew very specifically what I wanted to do, and I got more general from there. Mm -hmm. Whereas I know a lot of people find their way to anthropology, like, what am I even doing here? And then, then they get funneled into something very specific. Um, but as I go on and on, I, I don't know, like, I feel like going forward, I'm going to end up doing something tangential that I can then pull into my anthropology framework. Um, I don't know what that's going to be. I'll probably figure it out once we get to Germany, but, um... But yeah, I don't even know how I got into this. But yeah, anyway, so um, yeah, it's it's fun to to be talking to people in different uh, different subdisciplines of of anthropology because there's just so much there, and uh, I want everybody to know to know about all of it. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. tell everyone in your department that they should also do this, <laughs> and then I don't it'll know, do. it'll just be like the the Tamu anthropology podcast but yeah um, uh, that would be an interesting podcast i mean we just had a zoom happy hour where a lot of interesting things were said oh yeah yep we all got on zoom and drink beer <laughs> that sounds fun but all right um i guess that's it if it ends up being anything else that i need i'll i doubt there will be but i'll let you know yeah i, I mean i'll be here yeah yeah this if I'm not here, I'll be in an ancient lab. Yeah, I guess this is a good time to be, uh, I want to get like 300 episodes <laughs> banked during this quarantine era. So then I could just schedule it and for the next couple of years, they'll just automatically post. Yep. But yeah, um, thanks a lot. And, uh, sometime next month, this one will post. I've been, uh. I've been trying to find the birth dates of significant anthropologists. Oh yeah. Yeah, and um, 
I, I can't remember I can't remember who it was that episode two was. Angie was Darwin Day. Um, he's not an anthropologist, but he's an honorary everything. He's um, foundational. Yeah, yeah. Um, and who was? How can I not remember this guy's name? He was he was instrumental in incorporating indigenous perspectives into anthropological discourse. Oh God, I can't remember his name. Well, whatever. It'll come back to me as soon as we, we stop this recording. Um, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, this is great. Yeah. And uh, enjoy your quarantine. You too. <laughs> Stay safe out there. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Anthrospin connecting non-specialist to anthropology and specialist to specializations that aren't their own, Anthrospin is a podcast for everyone. We covered a lot in this episode, and not everybody can be an expert on everything. If there's anything we covered that you'd like to know more about, or if you're an anthropologist and would like to be a part, feel free to get in touch at anthrospin at gmail.com. For all of Pedal Powered Anthropology's content, including a post discussing the Numic expansion, check out anthrospin.wordpress.com. Anthrospin is made possible in part by my generous Patreon sponsors, including Deborah DiMarino, Emily Colgan, Mindy Walls, Anisha Savino, Alexandria Roll, Scott Rossi, Chris Catan, and Colleen McGramos. For more information about how to contribute, head on over to patreon.com anthrospin. Contributions in any amount can get you awesome perks like behind-the-scenes updates and early access to blog entries, early releases of video episodes, early releases of DVDs, exclusive giveaways, and warm, fuzzy feelings. Again, that's patreon.com slash anthrospin. Thanks for listening.